So on behalf of the Federal Society and its uh, Telecommunications and Electronic Media Practice Group, I, it's my privilege to introduce uh, Commissioner Deborah Tate. Uh, Deborah Tate has been Commissioner with the U.S. Federal Communications Commission since January 3rd, 2006. She serves as the chair of the Federal State Joint Board on Universal Service and has represented the FCC officially in bilateral meetings with foreign countries and as a speaker at numerous U.S. and international conferences. Commissioner Tate previously served as chairman and director of the Tennessee Regulatory Authority and legal counsel and senior policy advisor to two governors. She recently received Common, Me Common Sense Media's ANI Award for outstanding public leadership for her work promoting online safety and children's health. Commissioner Tate works to facilitate market-based solutions, cooperative federalism, and public-private partnerships to address major policy issues. Now, before we, um, before we officially uh, uh, greet her, um, it's customary to ask how many people here have cell phones, because this is a telecommunications event. <laughs> and if you do, turn them off. Um, now, uh, Commissioner Tate, please. Good morning. It's great to see so many of you all out on this dreary day. Um, Scott, thank you so much for your kind remarks. Um, I was glad that after reading the title of today's event, I don't know if you all saw, but it's a new role for an aging star that it wasn't about me. Um, <laughs> And it's also great to be here on such a historic day. Um, the budget proposed uh, to repeal the draconian federal excise tax on telecommunications services. And um, as you all know, the FCC has just released two NPRMs on uh, universal service. And, oh, it happens to be Super Tuesday. So it's great to be here today. I know that you all are all, like me, going to be following the news all day. Uh, a little more exciting topic than uh, the one that I've been given for today, but I'm very pleased to be here, um, as Scott said, as the uh, chairman of the joint board. Um, it has been a long and arduous process, although I know a lot of you all have been involved in it a lot more than I have over the past two years, but I do think it is historic in that we have really, I believe, um, truly moved the discussion forward and kept the dialogue alive, and I hope to continue to do that through um, working with with groups like you all. And, you know, I just want to say, stop and say for a moment, um, the Federal Society is really an august group. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, your many valuable contributions to furthering public debate, debate on all types of, of, of issues of the day um, by providing these types of open and informed forums for legal experts of opposing views, which I think is so important on broad ranges of issues all sides of the ideological spectrum that interact with members of the legal profession, the judiciary. I see lots of young people, so must be law students here, as well as architects of our public policy. You have indeed contributed a great deal to our discussions and the assuring of free speech, of free debate, and most importantly, a public understanding of the Constitution. And so today we're here to discuss one of what is an overarching public policy issue before us that may not be on the top ten of letter, Letterman or on the tips of a lot of Americans' tongues, but um, it probably should be because it affects every one of us and every American citizen. Um, universal Service and the Universal Service Fund that are, of course, two distinct topics. Um, I guess I wanted to start with just talking a little bit about my own regulatory philosophy, and some of you all in this room have known me since I was back at the state, and I don't think that it has changed much. 
Um, colleagues of yours, like Professor Chris Yu, um, have been part of my brain trust for a long time, so I feel like I have been uh, interacting with you all, even those of you all that I didn't know. And I hope that that principled philosophy um, continues to guide me across platforms and technologies, issues, and items on the eighth floor that, as you know, isn't really the eighth floor. As I look in amazement at the new technologies that evolve literally every day, it seems that we open up a newspaper and see some new exciting technology. I'm in awe of what is known as the American entrepreneurial spirit all around the world. Um, but it's not just the spirit to innovate and create, but it's then to monetize that creativity. And nowhere is it more evident, obviously, than in the telecommunications sector from telemedicine to mobile banking, from the use of a cell phone in rural America for emergency calls to the use of a cell phone for farmers to check commodity prices in the field. Um, all of these technologies have the opportunities to make us healthier, wealthier, safer, and more productive whenever and wherever we are. As I consider the proper role of regulatory policy in this dynamic and ever-changing world, I'm reminded of a simple fact that some regulators often ignore. We can't know, and indeed we won't know, where the market will take us next. And when one tries to predict the future, even experts can get it wrong. A generation ago, who would have expected a device the size of playing cards would hold the processing capability of the Apollo spacecraft, and that this device today would not only provide mobile telephony, but Internet access and now even television. That's why my regulatory philosophy has been, first and foremost, one of what I've been calling regulatory humility. I look to and especially encourage the industry to put forward market-based solutions whenever possible, whether it's regarding moving through the digital transition or negotiating program carriage or interconnection agreements. I recognize that most of the consumer benefits that we all see from the communications sector in the U.S. economy are directly related to the significant levels of competition and now more than ever cross-platform competition versus regulation and our deregulatory policies that have encouraged investment and fostered that competition. Of course, I do need that. I do understand the need for regulation if and when there is a clear market failure. Such market failure is probably less common in the communications markets as compared to other sectors, but we can't assume that it doesn't exist, and we should acknowledge that market failure may occur even if a new competitor appears, and sometimes in unlikely forms. And at the same time, we shouldn't assume that there won't also be government failure, such as when we adopt rules and regulations that we intend and certainly hope to benefit consumers, but in the long run may not do so. As members of the Federalist Society no doubt understand, policymakers, like business people in the market, can make mistakes, and you all aren't bashful to let us know when we do. This is partly because we may have imperfect information, which is another reason why your input is so very important in policymaking arenas. We should welcome these advances in technology and changes in the market. They're reminders that change is the only constant, part of what the economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destructionism, destroying entrenched business models 
models and technologies through innovative vehicles to create value, whether in goods or services, for consumers. We talked a little bit uh, I guess Scott mentioned some of the implications that are the topic of my international colleagues that I uh, often talk to here in Washington and around the globe. And as you all know, I was fortunate enough to be at the final negotiations at the World Radio Conference discussing issues such as the spectrum allocation for next generation 3G and 4G. The rules there will allow new services to enter the market and also protect incumbent services from interference and obviously will be coordinated coordinated by our colleagues all around the world. I'm reminded that so many countries are wrestling with the same issues that we are today, universal service obviously being one of them. Chairman Shahadi of the Lebanon Telecom Authority is trying to rebuild, obviously, his bombed-out um, beautiful land with next-generation technology. Um, as we try to encourage the opening of more markets in China, or hearing about Brazil's universal service plans by Anatel and the Minister of Communications, Minister Costa, that hopefully will enable people all along the Amazon to be connected by WiMAX and, and Wi-Fi, struggling with so many of the same issues and challenges that we are trying to connect remote citizens in remote regions of all of our countries. One of my own personal initiatives and one that uh, Scott mentioned is to try to foster international conversations regarding childhood online safety and I'm very pleased that this is now being discussed at the ITU level. Another timely discussion, obviously, almost daily, uh, is the explosion in wireless services. I know that you all know our competition report just came out, finding that almost 95% of, of uh, subscribers have three carriers, and most people in America have access to five wireless carriers. Um, I think that we are getting uh, our U.S. spectrum policy headed in the right direction. Obviously, with the su successful AWS spectrum um, and now 700 megahertz that we're all watching with bated breath every day um, uh, of this beachfront property, I'm pleased that, um, you know, on Friday we had reached over $18 uh, billion after the 26th round. Um, and this is obviously going to provide not only wonderful new innovative services for us as consumers, but also to help our public safety and first responders who are still really facing issues with true interoperability. And I can't go anywhere without doing a very short commercial for the DTV transition. So if you all don't have a link from your website to www.dtv.gov, I hope that you all will do that. I really commend the website. It is really outstanding. I also want to applaud all of the industry, um, the cable industry and the broadcasters, uh, over a billion dollars in PSAs. And I know if you're like me, I've already seen many of them. So thank you all for all that you all are doing, Kyle, on that. Um, another overarching issue, obviously, that is interwoven with universal service is broadband, one of our absolutely number one top priorities at the con Commission. Connecting to the Internet at broadband speeds, as we all know, literally is connecting to the world. It can help civic participation, as we've seen here in America. And also, I saw an online voting uh, pilot from Switzerland recently, also increased access 
absolutely to healthcare, telehealth, telesurgery, um, as I saw in both Alaska and Appalachia, positively impacting worker productivity and even helping add to virtual employment opportunities during this downward economy or allowing workers to stay at home and work in the case of a pandemic. As everybody in this room knows, we have opted for a lot light regulatory touch for broadband services, no matter what they're provided over every platform, cable, telephone, power lines, wireless, which helps ensure what we refer to as a level playing field, technology and platform neutral regulation. A light regulatory touch promotes vigorous competition, and last year the number of broadband connections in the U.S. by all of these competing providers increased by 61% to 82.5 million lines. According to the recent report from NTIA released last week, Americans' use of broadband has indeed soared. Home broadband has substantially risen over the past six years from 9.1% to 50.8% in two 2007. Rural America has also experienced impressive growth from 5.6 rural households in 01 to 38.8 in 07, a huge increase. No surprise, the fastest growing portion of the market is in wireless, where our technology neutral approach to policy allowed technologies based on both CDMA and GSM to commit to compete head on. <clears throat> over 240 million mobile subscribers use over 2 trillion minutes every year. And as the competing mobile technologies offer high-speed Internet access with Edge and EVDO, we see exciting opportunities to offer even more broadband services to even more of the 240 million mobile subscribers. Regardless of what some rankings may show, the U.S. has the most broadband connections in the entire world, and virtually all of our schools have high-speed Internet connections. You all have heard me say my state of Tennessee, I'm so proud, was the very first to connect every public school to the Internet. At the same time, obviously, we must and should improve broadband access to more to the rest of our citizenry. Less populated states and remote regions cannot be left behind. And in this uh, regard, I'm always wanting to highlight public-private partnerships like Connected Nation, which started as Connect Kentucky. It's now spread to Connect Tennessee and many other states, where through GIS mapping of areas without access to broadband, Connected Nation can outline a true business case scenario, identify barriers to consumer adoption in those areas, and then help develop plans with service providers to build out those broadband services. I found that most public policy issues really aren't solved by government, and that's why I generally believe in both market-based solutions and creative approaches like this public-private partnership. Finally, we are all here, obviously, to hear and talk a little bit more about universal service, which is woven throughout all of the topics that I just mentioned. As you all know, um, it's timely, given that we've just uh, 
issued two notices of proposed rulemaking uh, looking at comprehensive reform, which we, as the Joint Board, have been doing over the past two years. We incorporated two NPRMs, one that seeks comments on the rules regarding the uh, high-cost universal service to the CETC side of the fund, including elimination, and I'm sure you all will be glad to hear of the identical support rule, and the second, which seeks comment on whether and how to, impl- to implement a reverse auction concept as the disbursement mechanism for determining the amount of high-cost USF to ETC serving rural, insular, and high-cost areas. I want to alert you all that comments are due in 30 days and reply comments in 60 days, so get out your uh, computers and start sending in your comments. I do want to take just a moment to thank all of the members of the Joint Board and especially my state co-chair, Ray Baum. They have really remained dedicated in the face of a lot of opposition to trying to seriously discuss and move forward fundamental reform. Obviously, all of this is, uh, you know, envisioned by the process that Congress set forth. And so since 2002, when the Commission originally asked the Joint Board to look at the high-cost universal service mechanism and recommend reforms, uh, the Joint Board has been doing that. Um, It's the largest universal service part of the program, as you all know, and the one that probably we most often think about. Um, I've been clear that... I have reiterated my commitments to the key tenets of universal service, to promote the availability of quality services at just, reasonable, and comparable rates, to increase access to advanced telecommunications throughout the nation, and to advance the availability to all consumers, no matter where they live. Some of you all may disagree with the need to continue to fund a universal service fund when most areas of the country have multiple platforms and players. However, as long as it's on the books, I want to do all that I can do to reform it and transform it to meet its goals in an efficient fiscally responsible, and technologically neutral manner. Obviously, being from a rural state, I've seen firsthand the many opportunities that are provided by that. And while I support the principles of universal service, I also recognize the deep need for fundamental reform, especially as it relates to the high-cost areas. We must recognize how technological changes and new business models are putting strains on the mechanics of both the contribution and the distribution side, created during an outdated embedded wireline regime. The high-cost support mechanism has grown from about 2.6 in 2000 to $4 billion in 2006, obviously placing pressure on the sustainability of the fund. The growth obviously has largely, and you all have heard and seen the charts many times, been due to the increased support provided to multiple CETCs in areas that we have determined to be high-cost. The Joint Board's recommended decision, I think, is a common-sense, practical first step toward implementing more uh, universal service fundamental reform, and we just need to get on with it. I do support the recommendation to eliminate the identical support rule, and I also agree that reverse auctions do offer advantages over the current high-cost distribution mechanisms. I guess it will just be all in the details, and the proof is in the pudding. The Joint Board sought and received numerous in-depth comments 
and actually we got several really creative proposals regarding reverse auctions. So I hope that my colleagues at the FCC will explore this issue further. I've been one of the proponents of examining whether some um, cost-based mechanism is an appropriate replacement methodology for calculating support for CETCs, again, in high-cost study areas. A public fund that allows payments in areas to, to that are, have already been determined to be high cost in the first place based on embedded wireline costs um, versus much less cost on the wireless side perhaps would not meet most other federal funding guidelines. For those opposed to even an interim cap, I just say, show us your costs. Nonetheless, some of the recommendations raise questions that do need to be addressed in more in depth, and I do hope that you will take a look at some of those. I especially question whether it's prudent to create three new government-administered funds instead of reforming the ones which are already growing at an untenable growth. We need to clearly target and direct the funds more so than are done at present as Section 254 specifically intended to those who live in rural, insular, and high-cost areas. Like most citizens, unfortunately, I know that when the government starts creating new funds, it ends up impacting our pocketbooks and usually in a negative way. We, we really can't forget that these aren't companies' funds. These are the consumer who has paid into the universal service, who has contributed to this fund every single month, every one of us, and to increase the size of USF will raise, burden, will raise this burden even more on consumers. Obviously, there are other questions. Does it make economic sense to provide ongoing support for three services that ultimately compete for the very same customers? Indeed, the Commission has worked to help ensure, as I said earlier, technological and competitive neutrality, and to the extent possible, all providers of the same service should be treated in the same manner, regardless of the technology they employ. Other questions remain with respect to the broadband and the mobility funds. Should the new funds be more targeted and limited to unserved areas, or should they be used to enhance substandard and provide continuing operating subsidies? And what is the source of funding for the proposed $300 million and when will it accrue? Also bringing to bear the fact that there has got to be some kind of transition as we move forward on this fundamental reform. How should the broadband fund relate to other currently existing government programs, such as those administered by agriculture, or the numerous broadband bills that are currently pending in Congress, as well as the hundreds of state and local projects putting broadband across cities and towns and states all across the nation with state and local tax dollars. While we all support the expansion and deployment of broadband to every corner of this nation, we must do it in a way that is coordinated, efficient, targeted, and fiscally prudent. Again, as stewards of public funds, of consumers' funds, we must remain mindful that it is consumers who ultimately pay. I believe that this is an incredible window of opportunity to truly reform and update USF, and we need your thoughtful guidance as we move forward. 
I uh, wanted to add a few comments. I have been so involved with children and family issues, and I've tried to be a voice for families, as I am because I think it's important um, for families to get connected to uh, the Internet, internet and have uh, the um, – opportunity for broadband no matter where they live. But I won't go into that because I know that my time is really drawing nigh and you all do have a panel. Um, I do want to thank you all again for your good work and for continuing to to keep this debate alive. Um, I, I guess I was a little bit surprised when I went up to uh, Senate Commerce all alone to talk about the ETC side of the fund and to show the untenable growth and to kind of lay out the cause for the recommended decision that um, it was a very it was a very difficult um, conversation to have. Um, and yet I think that we are really at the point where we could really make differences in this program that would continue its sustainability and viability, um, again, to reach the goals that I think Congress envisioned in the Act. So thank you all. We need your leading-edge thinking to keep up with the leading-edge innovation, um, not because we need a new regulation for every new device or new technology, but because precisely we need to know what the appropriate regulatory framework is in this dynamic and transformative world. Um, with your help, I think we can create a new policy framework that provides effective incentives for investment and competition that ultimately will benefit consumers. So I look forward to continuing this effort with all of you. Thank you. Maybe one, two. Uh, one or two questions. Um, any questions for the commissioner? I would just leave this message with you. Thank you all so much. Thank you Great very much. to be with Thank you. Um, before we start the before we start the panel, I was asked to give a very very brief overview of universal service. Um, most people here, I'm sure, know these know these things, but I'll just I'll go through this um, anyway and perhaps give a few new um, a few new twists to it. <clears throat> so universal service refers to the idea that a good or service should be available to everyone in society, <clears throat> and it's usually justified on three grounds: uh, either it's a merit good, people believe that somehow everyone just deserves it. It could be for regional development purposes, and of course there's always an element of politics in there, especially given that uh, rural populations are typically overrepresented uh, relative to their population. Uh, and externalities, the idea that uh, the, the benefit to a consumer of telecommunication services, the, the benefit to society is greater than just the benefit to that uh, individual. Um, I should note that that, ar that that argument is usually not carried forward um, completely, and uh, just because an because a benefit is external to the user doesn't necessarily mean it's external to the network, um, which is an important point that rarely gets said. Um, it's also important to think about the historical context. Um, why do we have universal service in telecommunications? Why is it an article of faith in, in this country and around the world, even in the poorest countries, that we must have universal service in telecommunications, but not in, for example, healthcare? Um, and nobody uh, sort of goes back to that first, the very first question. Now, there are two sides of universal service, collecting the funds and distributing the funds. 
Now, historically, both were handled with cross-subsidies, which was relatively easy when there was just a single monopolist providing services. You price one service higher than cost as you can subsidize the other. Historically, business um, services and long-distance service was priced higher so that it could subsidize um, rural and uh, residential services. But cross-subsidies fall apart with competition, And uh, aside from the fact that they are very, very inefficient. Now we have a universal service fund that collects taxes on telecommunication services and then distributes those funds to telecommunications providers to provide um, for, for service. The bulk, the vast majority of these funds go, as you know, to the high cost fund. Um, the remainder, uh, of the second largest chunk goes to uh, schools and libraries. Um, and one question may be, uh, what is that money continuing to do, given that all of the schools and libraries are now connected? Um, and then a very small sliver goes to poor people. Um, not that I have any particular opinions on the efficiency of the fund here. Uh, now, um, we know that taxing telecom services is a very inefficient way of raising funds. Uh, it's inefficient because you're taxing a price-sensitive good, telecommunications, and so you're changing people's behavior by taxing it. Uh, any economist will tell you that, if the, that a more efficient way to raise funds for it, assuming you want to have a fund, is through general revenues. Um, but... That's, that's not the way we do it right now. Uh, now, as uh, Commissioner Tate said, the fund continues to grow largely because of an attempt to bring in competition to rural areas through these competitive uh, eligible telecommunications carriers, most of which are, are wireless companies, um, that were allowed to uh, receive universal service funds to bring in competition. But at the same time, nothing was done to reduce the amount of subsidies given to uh, the incumbent rural, uh, rural LECs in, in, uh, in those areas, even though they're losing subscribers. So what we have are more companies getting more funds, the same companies not getting fewer funds as they lose subscribers. So we're getting, you know, we have this tremendous growth in the fund. And now we need to do something about it. And that is what this panel is about. Um, so I am actually going to sit over here um, because we agreed, every, the panelists agreed to take just five minutes um, so that we can turn to the audience. And so I'm going to keep time, and I'm going to show the panelists. We're going to have two minutes, um, and when they should stop. Um, and I forgot my teaser, so I'm not able to do that. Uh, so let's quickly turn to the uh, Our first speaker is, uh, is John Banks, who joined U.S. Telecom in March 2007 and directs the association's policy development, advocacy, and legal work before the Federal Communications Commission, the FTC, and the courts. He also served on the board of the Universal Service Administrative Corporation, which oversees the administration of the Federal Universal Service Fund. All right. I'm going to aim for the five-minute rule and uh, see how fast we can get through this. Um, I am here on behalf of U.S. Telecom, which represents a very broad range of telecommunications companies, from very small, purely rural companies to very large companies that serve the most urban areas, but also serve very, very rural areas as well. And these are all companies that, that historically provided plain old voice service, but now a lot of these companies are providing innovative IPTV offerings, even in rural areas, and they're all very, very focused on broadband and rolling that out throughout the country. So the Federal Universal Service Fund that's at issue here is about $4 billion, as Scott said, and it's, it's pretty much a creation of the 96 Act. Before the 96 Act, again, as Scott said, all this is handled through a vague system of cross-subsidies. Um, Long-distance rates were too high to support local rates that were too low, and business rates were too high to support residential rates that were too low. Now, under the Act, the Act 
had a very sensible requirement that we should try to make these implicit subsidies explicit so that then people would know what the subsidies were and then competition could occur based on the explicit subsidies instead of trying to exploit implicit subsidies, which is fundamentally inefficient. The Commission has made some big strides in, in taking implicit subsidies and making them explicit, and fundamentally that's why we have this $4 billion high cost fund. I think it's clear, though, that the Commission has not made all subsidies, all implicit subsidies in telecom explicit, and there's a long way to go in that. So when we talk about universal service, it's not just the high cost fund. There are also state funds, but there's also still this leftover system of implicit subsidies. And that's why you have business rates that can be 40 or $50 in places where, where a residential rate could be $10. And in general, businesses can be cheaper to serve because they tend to be more clustered and closer to, um, to the uh, telephone company switches. So there's a lot of um, strangeness in the rate system. And the uh, cheap residential rates are fundamentally the product of legal requirements. So companies that do labor under these very low required residential rates have to look somewhere else for funds. They're not in a position nowadays to really get them from business customers because there's so much more competition. So there is a, a genuine need for a universal service approach, both at the federal and probably at the state level, to deal with these leftover regulatory impediments. Um, so what are our three key issues? We have three key, the three key issues for us are capping the runaway growth in the fund. As Commissioner Tate held up her chart, um, fund growth has been like this based on wireless carrier funding. And most of that funding is going to multiple wireless carriers competing um, with each other with funding from consumers, this tax on consumers. There are places where there are a dozen wireless companies competing and all dozen taking um, money from the Universal Service Fund. And our view is that's likely to be pretty inefficient, that you don't need to support that many carriers, and that we need to reduce the number of multiple wireless carriers that we support. That's a longer-run goal. For now, I think we'd all settle on the cap. A cap would cap the uh, growth in that fund. It would leave you know, substantial funds, about a billion dollars, going to wireless carriers. And just to illustrate the growth, in 2001, wireless carriers got about $15 million from the high-cost fund. Um, six years later, they were getting about a billion. So when we say runaway growth, I think, you know, we mean it, and it's a lot of money, and it is money that comes from consumers. So capping that fund is, is number one. The joint board under uh, Chairman uh, Commissioner Tate was the co-chairman of the joint board and led that effort to recommend a cap. We think that's very ripe for decision, and the sooner the commission acts on that, the better. I think we have substantial support there. We just need to finish that off and impose the cap, and I think that will be a substantial step forward in the progress towards universal service reform debate. On the contribution side, um, Scott's summation is very accurate. The way we collect money now is economically extremely inefficient. We tax long-distance usage. We, we tax wireless usage. That discourages use of services and creates a substantial, uh, consumer, consensual, a substantial loss in consumer surplus. There are a lot of studies on this. The Mercatus Center has done several that are very good. They try to estimate the kind of dead weight loss from, from taxing services that way, and, and it's pretty substantial. We could really improve that by moving to a numbers-based contribution system. 
There the tax is on the basic connection to the network, which is relatively inelastic. The uh, deadweight losses are much lower. And I think it's a system that has a lot more clarity because nowadays when you try to explain to people that the tax is on interstate long distance service, a lot of people don't know what that is. You know, if you buy a cell phone, what's interstate long distance? You just have minutes. So the, that is really a difficult basis to explain to consumers, you know, what they're paying on it. And it's an increasingly difficult for the companies to administer because people don't really make standalone long distance calls now. They're part of a bundled package and it's difficult to identify the revenue. So moving to numbers would be a substantial improvement in the economic efficiency of the fund and put it on a more solid ground. Finally, I think as Commissioner Tate said, there are a lot of issues for distribution reform. To sum up where we are, I think the first one is to reduce multiple support. There's no need to support 10 carriers providing the same service in an area. And second is the issue of better targeting the distribution of funds. Now we tend to um, assess whether or not you're high cost or whether or not you need the funds based on very large geographic areas. And we're in favor of moving to a much smaller targeted areas to identify the places that are genuinely high cost and to support service in those areas um, and ensure that consumers get affordable service. So, so um, the cap on the fund, moving to numbers, better targeting our distribution of funds and and uh, reducing multiple support, we think would move the fund substantially forward. So I hope I got in in my five minutes. Um, also, let me note that I'm, uh, I'm not giving you any, everyone's complete bio, so please take a look at them. I don't want to do anyone an, an injustice here. Um, our second speaker is uh, Kyle McSlero, who is president and CEO of the National Cable and Telecommunications uh, Association, which is the primary trade association of the cable television industry in the U.S., uh, in this role, Mr. McSlero is the cable industry's primary public policy advocate in D.C. and represents the industry's interest before Congress, the FCC, and the administration. Okay. Thanks, Scott, and uh, thanks uh, also to the Federal Society for uh, putting on this uh, panel and, and to Commissioner Tate, although she's left. I want to thank her as well for taking the time to be here. Um, I'll try to do the same thing. I think John did a nice job there very quickly, but some just sort of high-level summary points, um, which I think you've heard reflected already in Commissioner Tate, uh, Scott, and, and John's summations, which is uh, the big picture item here is I think everybody believes the concept of universal service is important, um, but almost no one actually thinks that the fund itself or the mechanisms are aligned uh, or have kept pace with the developing competitive marketplace. Um, and whether or not it's just the high-cost fund or the mechanisms for distribution, or how we think about per-line costs and, um, and, and how the, the fund actually flows to customers or to companies, uh, almost none of it would be how you would actually construct it if you were starting over. And the problem we have, uh, which is a real conundrum, is that the idea is on the table, which uh, in terms of the joint board recommendations or the FCC's NPRMs, um, are either are modestly move the ball down the field or somewhat counterproductive or perhaps actually compound the problems that everybody's identified. But there's this temptation to just do something now <laughs> so that we rein in some part of the cost. And the conundrum is that, that almost everyone says what we really need is fundamental comprehensive reform and at least 
I, and I'm sure others, share this concern, am concerned that as we focus on these initial, you know, and I don't say this in a derogatory sense, but modest steps that are being proposed, we're going to take our eye off the ball, which is real reform of the Universal Service Fund. Um, from our perspective as, as really the first facilities-based provider um, that's providing competition to the incumbent telephone companies, and I should say there's been a huge sea change. I'm not even sure how much people are actually aware of this. For the first time in history, you have another facilities-based provider competing against the incumbent phone companies, uh, where over, over four years, our estimate is that we've saved consumers $23 billion dollars where by the end of last year, we were uh, the cable digital voice product was uh, subscribed to by 14 million customers, and where by the end of this year or next, um, one of our companies, Comcast, is likely to end up being the third largest phone company in America. I mean, just the world has changed in the last few years, and people don't even know it. Um, so from that perspective, as a, as a facilities-based competitor, um, we think one of the important principles here, which is not reflected uh, either in today's regime or really in the proposals that have been put forward to date, is that we should be using universal service funds only where the marketplace is not working. So if we have a, an area uh, that is a high-cost area and yet there's competitive entry, one would think that the support funds flowing into that area should be declining if not eliminated. If the incumbent telephone companies um, have convinced a, a state that there's uh, enough competition that retail rates are being deregulated, which seems like a sensible policy, it ought to be reflected also on the universal uh, service side. Um, and that's not really been proposed, and it's not happening today. Um, next point is, and everybody says this, and it gets really hard when you when you put pen to paper, but uh, a true reformed system should really be competitively neutral, and I would say platform neutral and, uh, and technologically neutral. Um, no one's fault, but uh, for obvious reasons, historical legacy reasons, the rules in place today and to some extent the NPRMs continue this were designed around an incumbent telephone company world. So, for example, um, when you think about uh, promising ideas like reverse auctions, which seem like a, a way uh, to get to more efficient uh, distribution of funds. Um, if the auctions themselves are dependent on, on an incumbent telephone company's um, uh, uh, area of service as opposed to a, a different type of competitor's service territory, um, you're not likely to end up with a truly competitively neutral function. But those are questions we can raise. Hopefully we can work through. It's not to knock the idea of reverse auctions. It's just to say that reverse auctions, just saying that, doesn't actually answer the question. They have to be properly structured. In some ways, the most um, disturbing element of the debate today is how fast people have fallen into uh, the habit of just assuming that universal service should be for broadband, both in terms of taxing broadband uh, on the contribution side uh, and also on the distribution side. Now, it's also plain that um, universal service funds, just as a practical matter, have been used for broadband deployment. I mean, that's just the reality. But I think taking the step uh, to explicitly make broadband a purpose and mission and service to be funded by the universal service fund 
uh, is something that we should be leery of. And I would argue that given the complete mismatch between the competitive realities and what you would expect to have a declining um, fund uh, flowing toward voice services, that until we figure out how to get the voice service part of the fund right, we shouldn't even begin thinking about yet another new area uh, which undoubtedly will last the next, you know, 100 years. But I also recognize the political reality that everybody's for broadband deployment. Everybody wants everybody to have access. You know, Commissioner Tate mentioned Connected Nation and lots of uh, public-private uh, partnerships, which I think are a great idea. But ultimately, whether it's a, a direct subsidy, as has been proposed by some in Congress, uh, or the, the Rural Utility Service uh, broadband loan program, or if it ends up being universal service, please, please, let's make sure the funds are flowing to truly unserved areas and not subsidizing competitors in the broadband market. Final point, I don't want to get tased here. Um, final point on the contribution side, uh, and uh, uh, John mentioned this, I think there's at least among the industry providers, probably a rough consensus. I know not everyone agrees, but uh, the, the idea here is fairness and simplicity. Uh, I think a numbers-based approach or, some, or a regime where you can have some kind of successor identifier is probably the simplest, uh, most transparent mechanism for raising funds, um, We, at least for cable and I think for others, are completely willing to, to take into account and think about what that means for low-income uh, and low-volume uh, users, but, but we do need to move away from a system today that just is based on a, a legacy and, and, a, and a thought process about uh, long-distance revenues that almost no one in America actually uh, considers um, to be reflective of the reality today. So with that, look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Our third speaker is uh, Paul Nagel, who is the Republican Chief Counsel for the Senate Commerce Committee. Um, he joined the committee in March 2005 uh, as counsel, and uh, he's worked on Internet policy, spectrum policy, indecency, universal service, cable policy, media policy, and public safety communications. Well, good morning, and uh, I'm happy to be here. I think I'm here in part because my boss is from Alaska, and what better state to have uh, participate in the universal service discussion than someone from Alaska. It's, uh, it's a really hard thing to explain unless you've been there. I was fortunate enough, uh, an analogy I used is, to go to uh, Ireland uh, several years ago, and everybody told me, oh, it's a great place, it's very green. Sure enough, I got off the airplane, and I was in Ireland, and I was like, wow, it really is green, and you don't understand until you see it. Well, Alaska really is rural. Uh, you get to go to villages up there that you can only fly to or get to by boat. Uh, a good Most of the state does not have a road system, and you appreciate universal service. And then the one area where I think everybody, at least up here on the panel, can agree on is that there should be universal service to support Alaska. And then <laughs> it gets a little trickier when we, when we try and figure out how to do that. Um, you know, and part of the, the difficulty comes from the changes that, that we see now. Uh, you know, when I was in law school studying communications law, SS7 was really cool, and that was kind of fun, and that was the hot thing. But in an Internet age, uh, in a digital age, uh, there's so much, uh, the, the market is so dynamic and there's so much change that it's hard to devise a regulatory system that's reflective of that and can appropriately identify what it is that, that we mean to support. Um, 
do we want to support services? Are there particular services that society values? And that's what we want to support. And if, how do you then divorce that, or do you, from the underlying infrastructure? Wireless offers a unique service of mobility that you know, wireline services cannot offer as readily. Uh, so these are the difficult sort of high-level goals that we need to identify uh, solutions for before we can sort of achieve the fundamental reform that everybody wants to get to. And, you know, without a doubt, uh, in Alaska, we understand why it is so important to achieve those reforms because it really is crucial to the economy of rural America uh, and to the quality of life in rural America. You know, as the Internet becomes uh, a foundation for our economy, for uh, you know, services uh, throughout the country, if you're not connected, then you really run the risk of having a, a digital divide that becomes one of, of urban versus rural. And I don't think uh, any of us you know, want to see that. So brings us to some of the, the discussions of today. And, uh, you know, one of the things we, we've heard a lot about is a cap. And, uh, you know, I think at least with respect to fundamental reform, it's difficult to see where a cap makes sense to the degree that universal service is if the idea is we're going to identify certain missions that are critical and that need to be supported as, as sort of a, a basic good for the country, then how do, you, is, how do you arbitrarily set a cap to that, assuming that this is a dynamic uh, communications marketplace that is going to constantly have changes, you're constantly going to have transitions. It's hard to see how a hard and fast cap would be able to then meet the needs of universal service. And so I think that becomes a concern when you're talking about comprehensive reform, how a cap fits in. Uh, in terms of you know, interim measures that have been proposed, uh, I think that the, the bigger concern there is just to make sure that they are, in fact, interim. Um, uh, I certainly see some of the faces around the room who have been doing this for long enough and uh, have seen some interim things uh, <laughs> become uh, pretty permanent uh, in last administrations. So I think, you know, if we, as long as there's a commitment that whatever we do on interim basis is just interim, uh, we can continue to move forward on the more important comprehensive reform that needs to be uh, achieved. Uh, whatever that means, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy one of the panelists talked about uh, identifying smaller areas for support, uh, as long as you can support lots of small areas that add up to a great big area like Alaska, you know, there's a lot that we can, can look at and work with. Um, but, you know, I think one of the encouraging things is the FCC's release of uh, just the recent NPRMs, which are now sort of moving beyond the interim and taking on uh, the much more difficult task of comprehensive reform. And so with that, uh, I'll keep it at the very high level, that's what we do on the Hill. That's what we're good at. Uh, it keeps us out of trouble and it keeps us from getting uh, our bosses in trouble. Um, and I would also just note that, unfortunately, I have uh, a meeting with the boss that has come up that uh, I will have to cut out early. So I would just encourage any of you, if you have specific questions for me, to try and uh, do them earlier in the Q&A session than later. Thanks. Next, we have uh, Courtney Reinhardt, who is uh, Telecommunications Counsel to Ranking Member Joe Barton on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, she's also served as an advisor to Senators DeMint, Brownback, and uh, many others. Thank you, and thank you very much to the Federalist Society for having me here. I, uh, as Scott said, I work for um, Ranking Member Joe Barton 
on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and I'm here representing his views today. Um, as the previous panelists have uh, indicated, the Universal Service Fund is growing exponentially. It's in crisis. It's unsustainable, and, um, and we think there are about plenty of blame to go around for this uh, crisis. It's uh, the result of three factors. One, the legacy monopoly that has left us with unsustainable artificial rate structures and cross-subsidies, as uh, everyone's been mentioning. Two, unhelpful laws from Congress. And three, bad stewardship of the fund by the FCC. So, um, you know, we've already gone over the monopoly legacy. And uh, in terms of weaknesses in the 96 Act, uh, Section 254 directs the FCC to make all implicit cross-subsidies explicit, but it gives no deadline for the states or for the federal government to achieve this, and it gives no blueprint, and so regulators are able to put this off indefinitely, and they have a lot of hard decisions have uh, languished, and we have not addressed them as we've uh, been talking about today. Um, the um, Act also doesn't give any um, clear authority to the FCC to cut through the interstate, intrastate jurisdictional wall, what, which may be necessary for reform. And finally, the, um, the 96 Act takes um, universal service from a reasonable public policy goal into, you know, um, you know an endless um, subsidy for all advanced services. And uh, that's probably a recipe for a very large and unsustainable fund. Um, there are a number of um, troubling rules at the FCC. The FCC um, seems incapable um, of, of managing um, this universal fund, which is a very complicated tax and spend system, and it is known for being full of waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, you know, we've already talked about the equal support rule, which is a good example of a, you know, a good intentions gone wrong. Um, at the hands of the FCC. There's also the problem of rate of return regulation, which, you know, um, encourages um, rural carriers to stay small and spend big and uh, <laughs> doesn't encourage any efficiency. So there's, there's little that the FCC has done to encourage innovation and efficiency in the uni universal service program, and that is a problem in leading to, you know, the growth of the fund. And finally, what can uh, the FCC and Congress do to reform this fund? Well, on the contribution side, um, Mr. Barton believes strongly in a cap, an immediately and permanent cap on the entire fund. Um, he believes in, as was mentioned by um, others on this panel, in moving to a contribution based on phone numbers. It's the most economically efficient way to collect the, uh, the fund, the, collect the fees for this fund. It's simple, it's easy. And on the distribution side, uh, Mr. Barton believes in, like, uh, Commissioner Tate was mentioning he believes in implementing market-oriented um, ways of dis dispersing USF monies, and he's especially attracted to the idea of a reverse auction. Um, here, the FCC would define a service area, establish service quality obligations, and competing carriers would then bid for the amount of subsidy they would need to uh, serve the area. And this is attractive because it... Um, is competitively neutral, it incentivizes efficiency, it prevents duplicative fund funding in high-cost areas, um, helps, helps lower costs over time, and limits regulatory gamesmanship. Um, there are also five things that can be done to increase accountability in the fund. Number one, subject the fund to the Anti-Deficiency Act. There is uh, no reason why the USF fund should not um, 
conform to the same fiscal accountability standards as every other government program, especially now that um, the ADA can be applied without any um, disruptions to subsidy to recipients. Number two, um, implement performance measures. Every good government program or every good program must have goals and be able to measure its success. The USF fund has none. <laughs> Implementing specific goals for the USF program and um, timelines for meeting those goals um, will, um, will help uh, us keep track of measuring the success. It will also help us um, target funds, um, maybe um, help wean um, certain areas off of subsidies over time, and uh, it would be a, a good step forward. Number three, um, implement annual reports on how USF money is spent. Right now, um, there is little to no oversight of how, over how subsidy recipients spend the money um, once it's gone out the door. Reports on spending should be used in conjunction with uh, performance measures to ensure that the program has resulted in cost-effective cost effective deployment of, um, of uh, service. And number four, increase audits, um, strengthen oversight, and uh, make sure the FCC Inspector General has enough resources to conduct thorough and regular audits and investigations. And finally, number five, increase penalties for fraud. Um, in terms of answering the question of whether or not we should um, uh, subsidize broadband, I think I echo uh, what uh, Kyle Muslera was saying is, you know, don't take this dysfunctional, outdated structure and apply it to broadband. That would be a disaster. Um, at, at the House Energy and Commerce Committee, we recently passed a broadband mapping bill that was authored by Chairman Markey, and we did so based on the fact that um, we don't really know what's out there. We have no way to know exactly where all the broad, broad, broadband is, you know, how many um, providers there are in a market, and so it would probably be a good idea to really take a, a step, uh, take a step back, figure out where broadband is, um, where are subsidies, if any, are needed, and then let's look at other ways, more market-oriented ways, of um, of making sure that. Uh, broadband is deployed. Um, Commissioner Tate mentioned Connect Kentucky, which um, has proven to be extremely successful. Um, we should look at, you know, expanding that, which it already is. But in the meantime, we should also be um, vigilant in, in making it easier to deploy broadband. And that means lower, trying to lower barriers of entry, trying to um, provide tax incentives, and certainly trying to prevent tax increases or new taxes on broadband. And uh, as far as the year ahead, um, I think uh, Chairman Markey is committed to, um, you know, holding a lot of hearings on universal service issue and problems. Um, I don't expect any um, legislation to go forward this year since it is a presidential election year, but uh, this is something that will heat up and uh, something needs to be done, so I expect legislation at some point in the future. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Our final speaker is um, Larry Sargent, <clears throat> who is Vice President uh, for uh, Federal Legislative and Regulatory Affairs for Quest. Um, and I noticed from his bio that uh, this is now his 25th year um, in the telecommunications industry. Yes, I have been around a while, but there are a few faces I see that have been around as long as me. I won't identify you, though. Uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to, to be here uh, representing Quest. Uh, Quest is a uh, national service provider in the enterprise space. 
uh, and a local service provider across the northern tier, across to the northwest, into the southwest, and, and the Rocky Mountains. Um, forgive me for being less extemporaneous, but I want to, and sticking to a script, but I want to make sure I leave you with a fair sense of some of the things we agree with and don't agree with relative to some of the proposals that are out on the table. Quest Universal Service Advocacy has consistently emphasized the need for long-term reform of the high-cost support mechanisms and the need to stem the growth of all the high-cost funds. A necessary first step in accomplishing these objectives is adoption of the Joint Board's May 1, 2007 recommendation for an interim emergency cap on the amount of high-cost support that competitive eligible telecommunications carriers may receive for each state. Quest commends the Joint Board for recommending a path toward comprehensive reform of the existing Federal Universal Service Distribution Mechanisms in its November 20, 2007 recommended decision. Much of what the Joint Board recommends is consistent with Quest views. The focus of high-cost support reforms appears to have shifted to encouraging further deployment of broadband services. Quest supports this shift through improved distribution mechanisms that are based on what we have learned from the mistakes of the current high-cost support mechanisms. As a nation and an industry, we should strive to make broadband universally available, and federal funding should support that effort. But recognizing the many problems that have been identified with respect to the existing high-cost support mechanisms, broadband support should be designed and structured differently to avoid these problems. In June 2007, Quest proposed a new Federal Universal Service Program for subsidizing broadband deployment, the funds for which would come from instituting a new restriction above and beyond that contemplated by the recommended emergency cap on funding CETCs that would limit universal service support for wireless CETCs to a single connection per household per wireless CETC. As to the Joint Board's recommendations concerning a broadband fund, Quest agrees that the primary purpose of any broadband deployment subsidization program should be to aid construction of facilities in unserved, and I would underscore unserved, areas. Quest does not agree, though, that such subsidization mechanisms should provide ongoing operational subsidies. Quest supports awarding universal service funds to unserved areas, but only to one broadband provider, irrespective of the technology used. And I would note also that Quest has also actively advocated for reform of the RUS Rural Broadband Loan and Loan Guarantee Program. Both the House and the Senate Farm Bills would greatly improve the program by requiring the targeting of funds to, again, unserved rural communities. Quest agrees with the Joint Board that universal service support should not be used to subsidize competition or build duplicate networks, that the definition of broadband is outdated and needs to be revisited. That states should select the recipients and distribute the support based on federal guidelines for executing those functions 
with the states receiving block grants from the FCC based on the percentage of unserved households in each state and distributing those funds through an appropriate mechanism, such as an RFP process or possibly reverse auctions, although there are some mechanical and administrative aspects to reverse auctions that would need to be worked through to the lowest qualified bidder. That the commission needs a means of determining areas where broadband is and is not available, and that the FCC's existing zip code reporting requirement for broadband service providers is sufficient as an initial mapping vehicle. Reform of the existing high-cost support mechanisms for voice services should improve the effectiveness of that support by better targeting the support to areas where the cost to deploy facilities and provide telecommunications services are significantly above the cost for deploying and maintaining comparable services in more urban areas. Targeting support at the wire center level would more precisely direct support to truly high-cost areas. Quest supports the elimination of the identical support rule, and it supports a funding cap on the CET portion of the existing high-cost fund. Recognizing that there are some areas with no wireless voice providers, Quest supports a wireless pilot program. This pilot program would also be funded through a reduction in the number of supported lines for wireless CETCs to a single connection per household per wireless CETC. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so now we have time for questions from the audience. Uh, if somebody wants to start off. Uh, is there somebody behind the panel that behind there that I can't see? Well, let me start off um, by asking asking a question. Um, several of the panelists said that uh, they, would, they support universal service either in, in uh, unserved areas or underserved areas. I guess it's easy to define unserved areas. Um, how would you go about defining what does underserved mean? Um, any panelists who? Um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not sure what underserved means. That sounds like a broadband concept, I guess. I mean, for us, the, the issue is unserved and, and areas where service costs so much that the, the, um, the service you're offering is out of reach of the average person. So I mean, that's how we'd look at it. And, I mean, as uh, others have, have talked about, I mean, this is not just the universal service fund issue. It's all, also, in particular, the, the broadband loan program issue. Um, and I think our argument would be you really can't – once you start talking about underserved, you're in a morass, and it's actually a bad sign about where the debate's going. I mean, this really should be about truly unserved areas. And one thing I think we need to think about is uh, when we're thinking about support, thinking about support to customers as well as areas, because one way you can get to a truly unserved customer is to direct whatever payments or flows directly to, to that person or persons. Um, and once you start talking about areas, you end up with all of these gray areas. But we all know that. I mean, there's a parade of horribles about gated suburban communities. And I have to say, you know, as Larry talked about, we in Quest have actually worked together on this. You know, when you look at these flows, 
what people call un, you know underserved areas look remarkably like greenfield developments for for fairly wealthy people. Um, that's actually uh, raises another point, um, Larry. You, you mentioned um, the idea of. Yeah, I don't think you said it like this, but basically allowing households to choose a wireless provider and, and giving the household the subsidy. Um, and that was, I think, the only mention of a proposal that involves um, allowing, giving a consumer a su subsidy somehow to choose their service rather than funding an infrastructure provider to build out service in an area. Um, do you want to comment on that, on that further? Um, actually, I don't, I don't think I said quite that. I did not suggest that the uh – that subsidization shift from the uh, carrier to the customer uh, beyond lifeline and link up. What I did suggest was that as a way of getting your arms around the excessive growth in the fund, a way to do that would be to limit the number of connections uh, for a wireless CETC to one connection per wireless CETC to a household. And so family plans, for example, one wireless CETC would not be able to get support for, say, five handsets in a single family. And I think this simply reflects a certain pragmatism on our part that if you look at what has happened over the last several years in the omnibus funding bills, limiting the ability of the FCC to implement a primary line so that you could limit support to one primary connection, um, this is a way to avoid the issue of what is primary, what is not primary, um, but nonetheless still begin to get your arms around growth in connections. Hi. Um, very likely people touched on sort of federal state issues. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I wonder if people could uh, maybe speak received um, on the one hand in the Sixth Circuit in the District Court in Missouri's uh, decision uh, regarding certain VoIP uh, service um, versus uh, Eighth Circuit's decision. Um, obviously, there's sort of different regulatory history. There's some different legal questions before those two courts, but uh, part of what was at stake uh, there were susceptibility of the uh, services in question to state universal service fund obligations, and I'm wondering what people think about those uh, different decisions as maybe um, splits in the making, uh, and also just the general background policy issue of these uh, two very uh, um, different but overlapping schemes. Uh, I think on the, uh, the state side that there is a role for the states here, both you know, in general and also because a lot of the uh, implicit subsidies and sort of extra costs that the incumbent telephone companies have are state-based uh, state regulations. So I think overall we'd say that however state goes about a state universal service fund should be guided by the same principles that I think we're basically in agreement here. You know, on the contribution side, it should be efficient. It would be better if it were numbers-based than a, a tax on usage. And on the distribution side, that at a minimum, it should be targeted. It should not support multiple competitors. 
And, and then fundamentally, I think, you know, when you go to the states, there are a lot of state regulatory restrictions. Our companies tend to have these caller of last resort obligations, which can be fairly expensive in terms of you're obligated to serve everyone. There are uh, often service quality restrictions and, and things like and, and obviously the pricing restrictions on what you can charge for basic service. So to the extent a lot of states have a lot of work to do to rationalize some of their pricing and regulatory requirements on, on telephone companies. And I think, you know, state universal service funds are probably necessary to truly rationalize the uh, economic regulation. I guess um, the only thing I would add is um, I, I agree. I think the same kinds of principles we're talking about at the federal level should be reflected at the state level, too. I do think as we move forward, um, you know, query whether or not once you get away from the legacy state regulatory structure that's been in place and it's been so important on the incumbent side, whether or not you still really need to, to have duplicate funds. But uh, at least on behalf of the cable industry, we're not arguing uh, against them. It just it's something we have to think through. Um, and in terms of our VoIP service, our, our digital voice service, I mean, one of the things, even as we are pushing for deregulation of, of that in, in most respects, we did acknowledge up front that there are certain social obligations. So we actually voluntarily contributed mm -hmm. into the Universal Service Fund for the VoIP product that's been formalized now by the FCC. But, but we recognized early on that if we're going to be part of the system, we're going to have to be part of the system in terms of whatever social responsibilities there were. I guess two questions. One, we touched on a little bit on the Schools and Libraries Fund at the beginning. What do you think is the future, the appropriate future of the Schools and Libraries Fund, first? And second, Paul talks about everyone agrees that support for Alaska makes sense. What is the way to uh, narrow the universe of folks uh, that get support so that you eventually get a downward trend line on the high-cost support uh, side of the equation? Is it How does the targeting work? Is there a price cap type regime so the support goes down some percentage percentage every year because as the networks become more ubiquitous, there's less need for support, or what's the path for targeted? And well, I, uh, I, I would say Alaska, Texas, Massachusetts, and Hawaii, very, very important. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't want to do anything that alters the status quo there. Um, everywhere else, it's a free-for-all. Um, I think, uh, just take a crack at this, um, and I sort of alluded to this in my opening comments. I think, um, uh, you know, when you think about the interim cap that's been proposed, you think about elimination of the identical support rule, they're su superficially appealing and yet don't go far enough. Uh, just as there's a cap on the schools and libraries, uh, which I think reflects the reality that in most cases they are, you know, connected. Um, I should, a little plug for my industry, point out the cable in the classroom uh, did most of that, not just the E-rate program, um, and we did it for free. Um, but uh, we should be thinking in terms of a cap for the entire high-cost program, not just CETCs, um, because on its face, that's not competitively neutral. I understand why it's appealing. We've got to do something. Um, but we need to think broader than that, and, and, and on the identical support rule, um, I mean, yes, it makes sense for someone else not to necessarily be, uh, to have the same support as the embedded incumbent costs, but, but saying you're going to eliminate that for multiple carriers begs the question, is 
is the embedded cost for the incumbent actually the right answer if they have fewer lines they're trying to subsidize? It seems to me we should have an identical sport rule. It's, however, it should be an identical sport rule that's based on the most efficient provider of services. So that's why I say we're sort of starting to ask the right questions, but we're not nearly to the point where we're actually getting to the right policy answer, in, in my judgment. So, John, did you a second ago say that uh, we should not fund multiple firms providing service in the same area? Yeah, I think that's, and, that's yeah. So, and Kyle, you're just saying the opposite, right? Well, I, no, I think, actually, I think it's a fair point whether or not you need more than one. Um, I'm just saying if you are going to have multiple providers in a, in a marketplace that are receiving support, we ought to turn it around in terms of always trying to drive both the mechanisms for distribution and how we think about costs is based on the most efficient provider, not the least efficient, which is, in my view, how it is done today. It's hard to argue with that. Well, I mean, John, maybe, uh, maybe you could, or somebody else could expand on, on this a little bit. Um, if you, uh, funding only, uh, only one provider makes, seems to make sense, except that then an entrant is competing with a subsidized firm. Um, on the other hand, if you subsidize everyone who comes in, that leads to what we have now, which is an ever-increasing fund. Um, how, do you, how do you balance those? Well, I think that I've a lot of, I think a lot of the, these are really good questions and they're engaging and, and, and all. And I think those are things that need to be dealt with. And then I often stumble over the perfect versus the enemy of the good. And, and I do think the first few steps we need to make are to bring some more rationality to the fund. So, you know, and those are things like moving to contributions, doing some cap on the wireless, and then kind of moving forward with this, how do we make this truly economically rational over the, the longer term? And I think, you know, moving, for me, moving to sort of where we support one wireline and one wireless carrier per, per area and having those areas be smaller would be a substantial step forward and would start to get us to the place where we start to understand more more about costs and how the subsidies work. I mean, here there's just there's just too much um, uh, inertia from pre-act times based on all the implicit subsidies. And I think it's, it's really hard to make these final judgments about what the fund should look like in, in 20 years if we can get there. This is a question for Courtney. You'd mentioned greater accountability for how funds are spent. And um, I was wondering if there's a difference now between how wireline and competitive carriers are held accountable. And isn't there a good bit of reporting now? Um, I think there's a little better um, accounting for how wireline are, um, are spending their money. They have to account for their costs. When it comes to wireless, though, I think the uh, FCC tried um, at one point to say, um, if you, you know, give us a five-year plan on how you're going to spend this money. But that only applied, if I recall correctly, to um, CETCs that were designated by the FCC. So it doesn't apply. And most CETCs are designated by the state. So there really isn't um, an accounting of how the money is spent once it goes out the door. And that's, that's the real issue. You know, they could be spending money on the 700 megahertz auction right now. We don't know where this money is going. And I think there is there's a fair amount of reporting on the wireline side, although it's really fundamentally based on a state-by-state -state approach. So a state commission will work with carriers to determine how much flows into cost 
price reductions and how much goes into network upgrades in rural areas. But on the wireless side, I think it's a little uh, mushier. And I should just add to your point also that um, for the larger companies, all the USF funding is based on a model that, you know, does its best to model most efficient costs. So when you're talking about the costs, the kind of embedded costs, that's applied on the smaller carriers where, where costs are often are very lumpy, you know, because when they buy a new switch or something, that's a fundamental change in, in their cost structure and harder to model with an economic model. But we do use the economic model for the, the larger companies. Um, Larry, you mentioned the Rural Utility Service, the RUS, and um, more, uh, more um, uh, a reform of, of that. Uh, I remember trying to find some information about uh, RUS for a paper I was writing, and it's notoriously difficult to find how much they spend, what they're spending it on. Um, and then uh, after I used some of their numbers from their annual report, they seem to stop making an annual report. Um, could you talk more about that, that program and what sorts of reforms you think are necessary? The RUS uh, Rural Broadband and uh, Loan and Loan Guarantee Program um, is a program that's been around now, what, about seven, eight years um, and I think was initially funded at around 800 million, somewhere in, in that neighborhood. Uh, and the idea was for those areas that were considered to be eligible rural communities within the rural development title of the Farm Bill, that monies would be able to flow into those communities to provide broadband. It is a build program. It is not principally for operational cost. It's principally for, for construction. Um, when it was originally um, uh, put into law, uh, it was uh, established a priority for unserved, but only a priority. And one of the problems was that over time, while the priority still existed in law, in actuality, the money was going to areas that were already served, and we experienced situations where in certain areas served by Quest where there were at least three, four, five other service providers providing broadband, RUS money was coming in for the broadband loan and loan guarantee program. So our focus with both the House side and, and the Senate side on the RUS program, and there were a, a number of issues, but our primary issue was to give real teeth to the priority that the money go into unserved areas. And, and, I mean, you've been talking about the broadband side, but there's also, they separate out a telecom side, too. Yes, um, How is. much, do, what, do you know what the total is that's spent on these two programs now? You said it started about $800 million, that sounds right. I, I do not, and one of the reasons is we haven't tracked it because with respect to the general program for telecommunication services and the original broadband program, there was a 2% cap if you were a company that had more than 2% of the access lines nationally, you didn't even qualify for the RUS program. So I don't know how much money has been spent in the telecom program. I find it sort of amazing that there's this kind of under-the-radar program funding service in rural areas that almost rivals the size of the high-cost fund, and yet nobody knows anything about it um, and uh, is sort of excluded from these debates. Oh, there's a question back there. Yeah, um, my question is basically for anybody on the panel who um, has talked about the need for long-term sort of comprehensive reform, and it really gets to a point I think Courtney made about rate of return. It's Is it reasonable to think that we can have long-term comprehensive reform 
that works the same way in areas served by rate of return ILEX as it works in other areas, given that the way the system works today, universal service for rate of return ILEX is really part of their rate design? Um, yeah, that, that presents a particular challenge. Um, you know, when you, when you subsidize something above cost, you forever foreclose, you know, competitors from coming into these areas. So, um, you know, that's, the pro that's one of the problems with rate of return. It, you know, it keeps uh, rates so low that really there is, you know, you'll never get competition in these areas. They are on rate of return, though, because the FCC has decided that these are special areas that deserve special protections, and uh, that's why they get a cost plus a reasonable profit. The problem with rate of return is, is that it's extremely inefficient. You know, you, you know, you get more of a profit, or more of a percentage of profit, if you spend $2 million than if you spend a $1 million. So, um, you know, you really sectioning off these areas and foreclosing them forever from being part of competition. You're also ensuring that these, these companies stay small forever because, you know, taking advantage of the economies of scale um, would lower their USF subsidies. So it's, um, it's a real problem. That's why, um, you know, going to reverse auctions might be a good way to solve the problem. And also performance measures, making, you know, going back to what this gentleman was talking about, how do you ultimately get this program to start decreasing instead of increasing is through performance measures, you know, saying um, we will make sure that we reduce costs by 2% this year or um, we'll make sure we wean a certain subsidy area off of subsidies over the next five years and present a plan on how to do that. So I hope that answers your question. It is a challenge. It, it, it may be that you never get to a point where there is um, – a totally homogenous view of, of, of rate of return companies and not rate of return companies. There, there will likely always be some nuanced differences that need to exist. But I think in a perfect world, as, a, as representing a carrier who serves some of the most rural areas in the country as well, but at the same time uh, in serving less rural urban areas, uh, uh, receives tremendous amounts of competition so that you can no longer internally cross-subsidize your, your higher-cost areas off of your lower-cost areas. We have many of the same challenges uh, of making a business case for providing, for example, broadband service, bringing broadband service out to a rural area that a, a rate-of-return rural carrier does. We're a price cap carrier, and on the state side, in I think all of our states now we have an alternative form of regulation other than rate of return regulation. So, you know, as, as competition uh, has come to this industry, and while it started in the business market and it started in the urban markets, it has worked its way down, particularly with the proliferation of wireless, uh, to even much smaller and rural markets. And so a carrier like Quest has the same challenges as many of the rate of return carriers. And so I think we can get closer together in terms of the rules of the game for if we're going to have a subsidy program, one that is equitable and focuses on the community to be served and not 
the distinctions between carriers, although, as I said initially, there may always be some nuanced differences between rate of recurring rural carriers and, and larger carriers like Quest. Um, Courtney, also, you mentioned um, you, put, you mentioned reverse, reverse auctions in there. Um, and, of course, one of the problems with cost of service regulation is that you have to have some estimates of costs. And, of course, it's always in a firm's interest to say that its costs are higher. One of, the, um, one of the real benefits of reverse auctions, if you get them right, is that it helps to reveal what the true costs actually are. But as Kyle said, the details matter a lot. Um, India first tried – when India first did universal auctions you – know, uh, reverse auctions, um, they didn't work at all, and only the incumbent um, received – won any subsidies, but then they got it right. And, uh, and in countries that have done reverse auctions right, they've seen the bids end up being, you know, a third to a half uh, what they thought they would be, um, showing that the costs were much lower than, than had been estimated. Um, does anybody want to say anything more about reverse auctions? Uh, uh, Scott, I actually want to ask you a question on reverse auctions. <laughs> you mentioned other countries. Have you put a paper out on that, or where is that? Because that would be very helpful to see some of that information. Um, I will have a paper on it. Stay tuned. Turn key up. Yeah, just have it with me. Uh, Dennis, was your hand up a minute ago? If you have a horse that's just way too fat in your stable, you can either cut off his feed completely and he'll lose weight, or you could do it just a little at a time and uh, keep him exercising. This fund that seems to me to be a real fat horse, is there a political way, what would be the best political way, to begin to uh, put him on a diet and, and begin to shrink it incrementally at the margin rather than uh, something that may be the perfect, uh, being the enemy of the good, as John mentions, where... You just couldn't get there from here politically. Well, I mean, I think we'd go first for this interim cap to stop, you know, the excessive growth. And that does mostly affect wireless carriers. Now, wireline carriers are either essentially capped under this most efficient model or for the um, rural high-cost ones, their funds are divided up into four or five separate funds, a couple of which are capped. So, you know, First, capping the growth, and then I think moving towards getting rid of the identical support rule, and then just trying to target the areas because we we give out support based on very on broader areas than we need to. So if we can start to shrink the geographic areas where we award support, I think that's the way to start start actually shrinking the fund, or or at least you know making it more targeted, and more efficient. So those are my short-term suggestions. Let's go back to the funding side of the, of the equation for a second. Um, Kyle, you mentioned a numbers tax. Um, uh, John, I believe you did too, uh, as an efficient way of, a more efficient way of funding universal service. And it's certainly, um, uh, it's, it's like a head tax. It, it's definitely more efficient. It doesn't uh, affect people's behavior. Um, and Kyle, though, you also mentioned that you'd be willing to think about its effect on uh, low-income, low-volume low, low users. Um, could you talk about that a little more? Well, it's... Um I mean, just to put it in perspective, um, and this is a very crude way of putting it, but um, you know, if you're if you're thinking in terms of you know universal service fund, you know, being something over seven billion dollars, you've got six hundred million phone numbers out there, and if you uh, you, you assigned a dollar uh, per line per month, um, you would end up with roughly seven billion dollars. 
Um, so there's a way, you know, and so that sort of brings it home in terms of, of what it would actually mean to the consumer. There's a way to transfer it to a number system that actually gets you uh, where we are today, whether or not that's a good thing. Um, um, but it's also true that, that um, as with any uh, taxing mechanism, there's a wealth transfer of some sort, and it doesn't uh, affect every household uh, or every customer uh, the same. So. Um, I think one of the things, and I'm, I'm certainly not prepared to say uh, today that we know the answer, but I think one of the things we have to think about is that with low-income or low-volume users where, you know, conceivably there would be greater payments into the fund than they, that they have today, there's a political reality and a fairness reality that we should take into account. I think we need to look at it. Um, so I'm not dog – all I'm saying is I'm not dogmatic. I mean, numbers is just a – it's just a tool. I mean, there's nothing philosophically important about it. It's just how do we make this simpler? How do we make this more transparent? Um, and in doing so, I think, you know, again, the perfect being the enemy of the good, I think we have to be, you know, politically savvy enough to recognize that there are probably things on the margin that we have to take into account. Yeah, and, and when we thought about this low-income issue, the, the plan sort of the telephone companies have put forward would exempt from this this uh, numbers-based fee, people who receive lifeline and link-up support, which is a federal program, federal state program for low-income people. So that seemed the most direct way to address this, this issue. There are consumer groups with other plans, but this way we get right at, you know, people who are judged to be low-income for telecommunications purposes. And, and, and that's not so many. It doesn't really substantially affect the, the basic rate. Um, so we can do that and, and, and move forward, I hope. Any other questions? Well, if there aren't any other questions, um, I would. Uh... <laughs> okay. um, well, I'd like to thank the Federal Society for organizing this event. Um, and please join me in uh, thanking all the panelists. Thank you.